Now, Father, in this morning hour, as we enter into your word for study, for illumination by your spirit, for the revelation of your own name in our lives, we pray that you will do so by the power of your own self-sustaining presence. You have been kind to us, Lord, in not leaving us to ourselves. You've been kind to us in not leaving us to construct and craft a religion where we have to mediate ourselves to you. But in your goodness and in your grace, you, the Creator, have stooped low to us, and we are grateful. And so, Lord, as we begin a series together on the Old Testament, uh, that portion of the Bible that you have left for us as a heritage of your own self-givenness and self-revelation, I pray that you will help us to understand. Let the teacher be clear and let those who are here to hear understand. And, And Lord, we know that if any of that happens over these next few weeks, that it will be out of your kindness and your grace to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, welcome to you all. Um, we're, we're beginning a series today. I think it's a seven, a six or seven week series on, on the Old Testament, an aerial view. I, um, I'm not very good at titles. I, mean, I have to, you know, I'm, I'm a kind of boring guy when it comes to titles, but I, but I realize I'm learning this from Gil. He's helping me. Um, you know, the titles are kind of important, you know, hooks to get people interested. So I myself was somewhat surprised when The Adventurer came out and I looked at the dean's class and I saw Yahweh aflame. I, and I remember, I, I, this is for, true, I thought, who, who, who titled that? This series that, and then I realized it was me. You know, I, I fired off an email and I did that. Um, I, I'm not completely sure I know what it means, but you're here, so I guess the title, uh, the title worked. Um, I'm also a, a bit ambitious with what we're doing over the next seven weeks. My, my goal is to try to give a, an aerial view, a kind of Goodyear blunt view on on the whole of the Old Testament. I'm for sure that that's not going to happen. Uh, I mean, I, I. Uh, I, I have a penchant myself for details. I like getting into the details of things. So I have no doubt that we'll probably, I will trace, chase rabbit trails along the way. Um, but just so that you know, I have really good intentions, but you know about the road to hell and all of that. Um, so I, I have good intentions. This morning, I, I want to set the groundwork a little bit for where we're going, give you a little bit of scope about the Old Testament itself and how it's structured. And hopefully uh, leave some time for a little bit of repartee, a little, little bit of Q&A back and forth. Now, I don't know uh, your sentiments on the Old Testament. I've been around here at the Advent long enough now, not very long, but long enough for you all to know that you know, this, is, this is the area of the Bible that God in his providence has just sort of forced me to spend more time in than the other. Now, we have a two Testament canon, an old and the New Testament. I do like the New Testament. I'm glad it made the cut. Um, I mean, we, I just want you to know that. Um, but the Old Testament has its own kind of battle within the life of the church. It has for a long time. So I, I have a kind of personal mission to help people to, and, and prayerfully encourage people to love the Old Testament. But I was reminded just this week, um, I'm teaching a class at Beast and Divinity School uh, uh, with a bunch of students. I mean, we have 10 or 11 students, 12 students. We're reading the Hebrew text of Exodus together rather slowly. Now, some of you may be hopping into the Lay Academy class that I'm, I'm doing at Beeson as well. well. We'll be getting to some of this. I'm going to steal a little bit of my thunder. But, but I was reminded just this week of how bizarre certain aspects of the Bible really are. 
I mean, I, I grew up in a world, and some of you did as well, and some of you have not. You're newer to the faith, or you're maybe an adult convert, or, or your story doesn't have sort of Christianity from, the, from the, your, your mother's knee up. And so when you come to the Bible, you come to it with somewhat fresh eyes, and, and you can, my, my hunch is, you, you may be a little bit more quick to see strange things, like that's weird, that part's weird, I don't understand that. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I get that. I, you know, growing up where the Bible was just a part of the, the lens by which all of reality was viewed, my instincts are not to say that's strange. But now when you get into the details of it, there's some weird stuff there. And I understand why the Old Testament has had its own kind of battle. Can I give you one of those weird ones this morning? This is to kind of set things up. So what's happened in Exodus chapter 4? Um, Moses has had his burning bush encounter. We'll talk about it a little bit in the, in the weeks to come. Uh, he's married a Midianite woman, uh, the son of Jethro, or Jethro, who uh, is a priest of Midian. The Bible leaves all kinds of questions unanswered about Jethro and the Midianites. Um, obviously, Jethro knows who Yahweh is. Um, he's a big help to Moses. The Midianites save Moses' life. Um, you know, there's just a lot of sort of religious historical stuff that we don't know. The Bible doesn't give us. But Jethro's a priest. He's a priest, a Midianite priest. Um, and, and Moses takes a Midianite wife. Uh, Zephora is her name. And they have a son together, Gershom. And so here they, this is going on. Moses has this call where he has taken from Egypt into the, to the wilderness in Midian. And now he's being sent back to Egypt to, to rescue the sons of Israel. I mean, this is one of my favorite sections, actually, in the Bible, because it gives us a little sense of what's going on with Israel as a nation and God's relationship to her. Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart. This is one of those hard passages, frankly, the Bible, where God says, I will harden his heart. And later we see Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And, well, this is, this is a difficult thing. And you shall say to Pharaoh, and, and one could, could, I think, if we were to make a t-shirt of the book of Exodus, this could be its theme, right? Uh, Thus says the Lord to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go so that he may worship me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay your firstborn son. This is heavy stuff, right? I mean, one could say that at the heart of the theology of Exodus in this showdown in Egypt is, whose firstborn son is going to live? Is Pharaoh's firstborn son going to live? Or is Yahweh, the God of Israel, is his firstborn son going to live? And we know how the narrative unfolds. So that's what, I mean, this is at the heart of the theology of the book of Exodus. Moses is set apart. He's both a prophet and a priest. He's sent back to his people to reveal the name of his God, to be their deliverer, to be their redeemer. I mean, you have the scenes before you have ceased to be demil. You know how this goes. And listen to this. The next three verses, this is crazy. And at a lodging place on the way. So God just told him to go. You know, do you know this these verses? I read, my mom called me this week, and she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm preparing for my Hebrew exegesis class, and you're not going to, I mean, it, this is tough. And I told her the story, she said, that's not in there. I said, yes, it is. 
at a lodging place on the way. On the way where? On the way from Midian to Egypt. The Lord, that is Yahweh, met him and sought to kill him. Who? Well, if this were an English prose paper, and some of you know this, I don't know if Jim's here or not. I mean, if this was an English paper for a freshman in high school, I mean, this is C minus, right? Why? Because you have to identify your antecedent first before you start talking about pronouns. Who's the he? I got to know who he is. A pronoun stands in the place of a noun, which means I need a noun. Where's the noun, right? I don't know. <laughs> At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Brace yourself, this is rough. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses's. if I'll do scare quotes here and I'll keep my eyes down because I'm embarrassed, feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Kind of romantic, I think. Um, so he let him alone. Who? Well, Yahweh, and we're just going to interpret it this way, let Moses alone. And then it was said that she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And then now he's off again. Is that bizarro or what? I mean, here is Moses on the way to do what the Lord has told him to do. And now the Lord meets him in the wilderness and actually tries to kill him. And then you have Zipporah. How does she know to do this? We don't know. I mean, there's so many parts of the story that leave us with a lack of necessary knowledge to put all the dots together. But Zipporah acts in a ritual act of circumcision on her firstborn son. Remember, all this is about the firstborn son. On her firstborn son, and then she applies that blood to Moses, and it's the blood applied to Moses that saves his life from the very God who called him to do what he called him to do. And there's so many things about the story that just leave us befuddled and leaves me speechless. It's only three verses. Surely some editor could have and got that out, right? But they didn't do that. It says something, frankly, about the ways in which the traditions of Israel had been preserved. They didn't do that. Because even though there is a lot about this from a religious historical perspective that leaves us a little bit befuddled, there is still a theology at play here that sets up this whole notion of the firstborn son of Israel. The firstborn son who is Israel. And the necessity of blood being applied as an expiatory force, as a force that assuages the wrath of God, both for Moses here and as we move on to Exodus chapter 12 and 13 and the Passover as well. There's a connection here between the blood of, the, of circumcision and the blood over the doorpost, and it's in the blood, the means of the blood, by which Yahweh's wrath is assuaged. That is a robust theological point to, to preserve even though the story leaves us kind of befuddled and going you know what um, that's a little troubling that God sought to kill him but it shouldn't surprise us should it because we've seen these kind of encounters between God and his people already haven't we I mean what happened to Jacob as he's at the river Jabbok in Genesis 38 <clears throat> Here Jacob comes to the river. It's one of my favorite scenes in Genesis. He comes to the river. He sends his family across the river, and he stays there. We're not really sure why. The narrative suspends a kind of resolution of that. Why is Jacob staying here, and he sends his family over there? And before we know it, Jacob's in a wrestling match with a stranger. Wrestling all night long. I don't know what that looks like. 
how someone wrestles all night long. And all of a sudden he begins to realize this isn't an ordinary man. This is the angel of the Lord. And then he realizes, oh, this isn't the angel of the Lord. This is God himself. This is Yahweh. And Yahweh looks at him as they wrestle all through the night and the daybreak comes, the, the, the sun comes up, kind of, I mean, I, this is a bad analogy, it's vampire-ish in a way, right? The sun comes up and now the scene changes and the Lord demands for Jacob to, to name himself. What is your name? And Jacob has to own up to it. My name is Supplanter. And then he said, Jacob says, and what is your name? And God says, that's not for you to know yet. And then he changed his name from Jacob, the supplanter, to Yisrael, that one who has striven with God and prevailed. It's an incredible scene, but what is it a scene? It's a scene between God's elect, the one in which he's called, and the, and the conflict that God brings in his election with his people between himself and them. I was wrestling this with my students, and I want to tell you this before we start going into the Old Testament. Because, they're, they're, you know, I, I won't be surprised if it's just ten of us next week, right? Because this is where we're going as we, as we press on. Yahweh, our God, whose name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is not safe. It's a hard thing. It's actually a hard pill to swallow. Because we, we like God in a box that we can sort of protect, right? And we can fit him into our particular frame of reference. I mean, this is a God who helps me in X, Y, or Z. But what I learned from the Old Testament from the beginning to the end, because the Old Testament is a world that reveals to us the character of our God. And God is not safe. It's not safe. But, if I can use C.S. Lewis's language, as we see throughout the whole narrative of the Old Testament, but he is good. He's good. He's loving. He has set his affection on his people. It doesn't mean that he won't strive with them. It doesn't mean that we come to the cross and we remove all the blood from the cross and make it a clean, sedate kind of scenario. It's not a clean, sedate scenario at the cross, is it? It's messy. It's bloody. And the blood part of that's really important. Matter of fact, it's so important that I think you and I could say our whole salvation depends on that bloody reality that we see back here with Moses in the wilderness, with Zephyrah and the, and the circumcision. And later on, as they're dipping that hyssop into their blood and putting on their doorposts. When I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over you. And this is what we have when we get into the Old Testament. I, and I wanted to sort of give you a warning, like a sort of dear reader, be prepared as we go in. Why? Because the character of God in the Old Testament is revealed. And it's revealed, and I've said this before in here, but we'll see this sort of expanding as we press on over the next few weeks. It's revealed as one who is severe and merciful. He's merciful and he's severe. His judgment, his character is holy. To use the language of Rudolf Otto, which I think is actually good language, he is the mysterium tremendum et fascinans. He both sort of reaches us and grabs us with fear and fascination all at the same time. He's a mysterium. He's a, he's a mystery. But as a mystery, he is both overwhelming and fascinating and drawing at the same time. Isn't that what happened in Exodus 3? I need to go see what's going on over there with this bush that's burning and it's not being consumed. 
It's fascinating and it's terrifying all at the same time. And that's the power, I think, of the gospel-shaped understanding of the Old Testament, that we find refuge from this overwhelming, terrifying reality. We find refuge from that God in that self-same God. That's where we find refuge, in him. Safety in under the shadow of his wings. So the character of God is revealed, and the character of God is revealed in the Old Testament, and the very complex and torturous relationship of God and his people Israel. We're going to see that as we go on. And it's not really a very pretty scenario, is it? And here God creates the world. You can get the scene right before you. God creates the world. Humanity responds in rebellion right out of the get-go, which becomes a kind of plague that, that, that plagues humanity from now on. We, we call that within Christian theology the problem of original sin. And we see now the outworkings of this. We see the outworkings in Genesis chapter 3 and then in Genesis chapter 4 where we have the first murder and as you move on in that chapter from the murder of Cain of Abel, there's another murder from one of Cain's sons, and he rejoices in his murder. It gets ugly. You see, the Old Testament is a book that reveals to us that sin does what sin does. You know what sin does? It breeds more and more. It's like a kind of infectious reality that begins to work its black tentacles throughout the whole complex of Israel's life so that Israel's holy history in the wilderness... God setting them apart to be his people as a blessing to the nations. And we'll come back to all of this. That holy history of Israel turns as we move into the historical books of the Old Testament into an unholy history. And before we know it, by the end of that unholy history, the credits are rolling before us. We're moving into the New Testament and we're asking, surely there has to be more. Which is kind of the way in which the Old Testament sets itself up as the voice of anticipation. The time of anticipation. Jesus, to use Karl Barth's image, is knocking on the door of the Old Testament. Not present in yet because we're waiting, but he's knocking there and he's present by virtue of his absence. We're waiting for Jesus to be, to be revealed. So when I come at this, I mean just so you know, because we have to shape this thing. There's a lot of details here. But when I come at this for the next few weeks, my, my main focus, even when we get lost in the trees... My main focus over the forest is to, is to press the Old Testament to come to terms with who is God. That's our primary question. It's a theological question. Who is God? And how has God revealed himself to us in this powerful narrative and all the various genres of the Old Testament? Narrative, poetry, um, uh, poems that you have that are high and lifted up, uh, epic stuff, I mean, all, the apocalyptic, the future, the clairvoyant stuff, all of that's there. And the pressing question that we have is, who is God? Now, one of the fascinating things that I think from the, from the standpoint of church history is that the early church received the Old Testament. Well, I'm talking about the New Testament and its own compositional history. And the early church fathers themselves, by and large, received the Old Testament, number one, without any question of its anterior authority. They believed that the Old Testament was authoritative. And number two, they received the Old Testament without any redaction, without any correction. They let it come in its own material form. Exodus 4 and all. The strange bits too. They don't get cut out. 
So there's not a kind of Jeffersonian approach to the Bible within both the New Testament or the early church, right? Get out the wide out. Those parts that are kind of offensive to a modern mind, like this one here. Uh, let's get rid of that one. Zephyrah did what with what to what? Now nah, I'll pass on that. Um, you know, th- that's the kind of instinct that you'll find within a, when a, within a modern mind. That is not the instinct that's at play within the history of the church. It received the Bible, number one, without any question of its authority. So much so, and this has actually been a bit of a gestalt shift in my own thinking on these things. So much so that in the early church, the question was not, what do we do with the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures now that Jesus is here? It was actually quite the reverse. What do we do with Jesus? How do we understand the identity of Jesus in light of the assumed character and givenness of our Hebrew Scriptures? So that when they had to begin to start speaking and forming a grammar about Jesus, to describe who he is and was, what was their playbook? Where did they go? They went to the Old Testament to provide for them the grammar to come to terms with who this person, this God-man actually is. And number two, they received the Old Testament without any redaction. I mean, isn't that, you, you, editing. I mean, isn't it fascinating? I find this fascinating. But you don't have any Hebrew manuscripts or Greek manuscripts, say the, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And by the way, just as an aside, there is no such thing as the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It is a complex, multi-layered thing of Old Greek with later recensions and corrections and adaptations all there in the press. It, it's a mess. So for someone to say, whenever I hear someone say the Septuagint, I go, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Right? It's a, it's a complex reality. But there were Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible. And in these Greek translations, which one might expect these kinds of resignifications to take place, we don't really find it. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold my servant, comma, Jesus Christ, comma. Going, we don't see that. It's just, behold my servant. And I think there's a key theological point to be garnered from that reality. And that is, both the New Testament authors and the early church and the broad stream, and it's a broad stream, but the broad stream of the Christian interpretive tradition of the Old Testament allowed the Old Testament's theological sense-making to take place right on the level of its own wording, within its own idiom. It doesn't force something onto it, but it allows the Old Testament to do its own kind of work. So much so that Bavar Child said, and I think very helpfully, Bavar Child said, the battle for the Trinity in the 4th century was not a battle against the Old Testament, but was in fact a battle for the Old Testament. The exegetical ground, the Bible ground, where church fathers were wrestling over how can God be one in three? How can there be a unity and a plurality within one being? How can that be? It was, it was the Old Testament that provided for them the kind of framework for coming to terms with that. So much so that Richard Balkum, New Testament scholar, some of you may know that name, Richard Balkum said, the Hellenistic philosophical world of the Greco-Romans did not have an apparatus ready to do the kind of Trinitarian work that the 4th century needed. But the Old Testament did have that kind of apparatus. So it's significant to kind of recap this here, that in the early church, in the New Testament itself, they received the Old Testament, number one, without question of its authority, 
It is a divine word, a self-disclosure of God's own way and will with the world. And number two, they received it in its own form without trying to redact and correct it. Now, this is all introductory stuff. That was point number two on my very inchoate uh, outline here. Uh, number three, number three. Now, if you're browsing Barnes & Noble and you go to the Judaica section, right, and you come to the Jewish Publication Society Bible, do any of you have one of these on your shelf at home, the JPS? Now, um, I, I just, um, I mean, I, I, I just ordered, I don't know, six months ago, the Jewish Publication Society Study Bible, where you actually have Jewish scholars who are reflecting and wrestling with the biblical text. I find it very helpful, actually. I'd say that. Not only helpful, I just find it fascinating. Number one, because you have these scholars who have a high view of the biblical text itself. They're obviously not interpolating any sort of Christian theology into it, but as far as wrestling with what's going on, I actually find it to be very helpful. But if you were to open up the JPS, the Jewish Publication Society Bible, and to look at it, you might be surprised. Because the way in which the Old Testament is shaped and ordered is not like our English Bibles in the King James Version tradition. Which, by the way, is the tradition by which all English translations kind of find themselves either within that stream or reacting against it. The King James Version, without doubt, is the most, and in the Book of Common Prayer, frankly, is without doubt one of the most important and influential shapers of the English language and the English worldview in the modern world. I mean, it's just, you can't overstate how important the King James Version of the Bible and, uh, and both the Book of Common Prayer were for shaping a grammar for how the, uh, the English-speaking world spoke about itself self and reality. So the King James Bible, though, shapes itself in a kind of tradition that really is hard to locate where this comes from. Though it might be more Septuagintal, Greek text, Vulgate-ish than Hebrew text, but it's still not exactly the same. I mean, you know how this goes, right? You have the Pentateuch, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then you have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then, which was my favorite as a teenage boy, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Malachi. Right? Yeah, right. But, right. It's all written right here. You just didn't see that. All right. That's how our English Bibles are set up. It's a four-part uh, setup. So that you have the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, that then moves into the historical books, Ruth included, Chronicles as well. That then moves into the wisdom literature, the poetry, um, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then it goes into the prophets, ending with Malachi, which kind of nicely, with all the stuff about Elijah and Malachi, kind of nicely lends itself right into Matthew. Okay? That's what we know. If, if you tried to touch that with a publisher, I mean, your hand would get cut off. I, I know of people who've encouraged publishers to think about ordering the biblical, the Hebrew canon in a different way, no publisher is going to touch that. This is ingredient to the way in which we view the world. That ordering is set. It's not going anywhere. But that's not how the Hebrew canon orders things. And I actually think that there is an interpretive significance to the way in which, frankly, both the English Bible is ordered, but the way as well in which the Hebrew canon is ordered. And I do make arguments myself, and I can't really make an argument this morning, for the priority of the Hebrew canon. 
and the way which the Hebrew canon is shaped. This is how the Hebrew canon is shaped. And why I ask if you've seen one of these JPS Bibles. You'll see a JPS Bible, and then underneath it often say, capital T, little a, capital N, little a, capital K. Have you seen that? The Tanakh. And what is the Tanakh? Well, the T, the N, and the K are the big letters that reflect the tripartite division of the Hebrew canon. Torah, that's the Ta part of the Tanakh, the Torah, Genesis to Deuteronomy. The Nephi'im, which is the prophets, I'll come back to that. And then the Ketuvim, which is the writings. So you have the law, the prophets, and the writings as this framework by which the Hebrew canon is shaped. And you might be surprised to find this out, and some of you have heard me talk about this before, but again, it just bears repeating. When you come to the prophets, they've been divided between former prophets and latter prophets, so that Joshua... Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, are all understood to be former prophetic literature. That is significant from an interpretive standpoint. It's significant to me because I realize some of these crucial historical books, Joshua, Judges, all the way to Kings, which leads us up into the exile. So that Genesis to Kings gives us a kind of large narrative story all the way from creation to the exile of Israel. It's, it's actually well structured there and, and, and of significant interest. But it also tells me that when I come to these historical books like Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, that I'm dealing with prophetic literature. It's not giving me a kind of detached, modern, empirical history of Israel. It's not doing that. As a matter of fact, some of the details that you might want to know when it comes to Israel's history simply aren't given. For example, we know that Josiah was a messianic king, a good king in the southern kingdom. He found the law that was buried in the temple, and he instituted the practice of the law within Judah's life, tearing down the high places, restoring the centrality of Yahweh worship. I mean, he was a good king, a messianic king. And he dies at the hand of Pharaoh Necho II in the northeastern part of Israel in a battle there. And as I read that in the Bible, I go, I really would like to know why he was there. I really would like to know what the geopolitical situation is within the ancient Near East at that point that would force him to do that, to set himself up over against the Egyptians versus the, I mean, what's going on? And you know what? The Bible is just not interested in giving me those kind of details. It's a highly selective theological account of Israel's history, that unholy salvation. It's a theological account that moves from the book of Deuteronomy, where God says to them, choose life. Here you are at the crossroads on the plains of Moab, about to go into the land that was promised to your forefathers. This is it. This is the defining moment. Choose life, because if you order yourself to Torah, you will have all blessings flowing your way. But if you choose to go your own way in rebellion against me, you know I'm a jealous lover, Israel. If you serve and worship other gods, then you will, you will meet death. Choose life, not death. And what do we have in this unfolding history through Judges and then Samuel and then Kings? What did they choose? They chose death. And that's the unfolding of this history, this prophetic history that has its whole theological moorings back in the book of Deuteronomy. So the law, 
the prophets or the former prophets, and then you have the latter prophets, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12, the minor prophets. And then you move into the writings. And most of the writings, <coughs> writings, the list of them, begin with the Psalms. How does Psalm 1 begin? How blessed is the man who does not walk, who does not stand, who does not sit in the seat of the, of the wicked, but his delight is in the Torah. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates, he haggahs, he mutters over the law day and night. See what the, the writings are, this whole set of writings where you have Ruth is there, you have Song of Solomon there, you have Proverbs there, you have Ecclesiastes there. We'll talk a little bit about Ecclesiastes before we're done. All these books are there that assume the law and the prophets that come before them. So that the writings become, within this tripartite canon, a demonstration of what it looks like to live life under the reality of the law and the prophets. So much so that the law and prophets form the fundamental grammar of the Old Testament itself. The law and the prophets. Remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus gets on to these two disciples. How slow you are to believe all that the law, Moses, and the prophets said about me. It can become shorthand for really the whole of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. So as we move on in these next uh, six weeks, I will make use interpretively of the way in which the Hebrew canon sets up um, sets up its, its own internal ordering and structuring. And you'll be interested to know that in the Hebrew ordering, for the most part, Chronicles is the last book. So you have Chronicles ending, which gives us the hope for the future coming Davidic king. And that has its own kind of interpretive value as you move right into the book of Matthew as well. Right? So that, I think that's significant too. Is it 1045? My watch is a little on the fritz. 1043? Oh, let me stop. I wanted to do Genesis 1 today. And by the way, you'll be interested in this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? Seven words in Hebrew. Seven words. Where the whole Bible starts. Seven words. And that seven is obviously quite significant with where we're about to go with Genesis 1. So that's a little teaser for next week as we get into uh, Genesis chapter 1. Okay? All right, that's like putting your mouth to a fire hydrant. That was a lot today. Um, we have time for a few questions. You want to bat some things around? I'm sure there's a lot of loose ends that haven't been dealt with. Well, I guess your first point about God coming to kill Moses, isn't that what Jesus tells Nicodemus? And we've all got to die be born again, that he's coming to kill us all? Well, <laughs> um, I, I, don't, I, I don't know if I quite turned the phrase that way, but... I mean, we all have to die to sin. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... Or, or another way of putting it, too, in, in line with your thought is, again, these are uncomfortable things. Right? This is You get to the point where it's like, you, you got to get your steak knife out and start cutting and get some mashed potatoes. This is, this is meat and potatoes kind of stuff in the Bible. I mean, that verse in Romans chapter 10, and then you go into 11, where God says, um, I shut up all men unto disobedience so that I could have mercy on them all. I mean, this is... God is on... A tyrannical rampage to reveal his love to the nations. And he does so by shutting them up into disobedience so that he can redeem humanity. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, that's hard stuff. I mean, I, I, I get it. You mentioned earlier that uh, 
the God of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures is uh, dangerous. Um, do you think part of the struggle is with the people of God, the nation, continuing to struggle with all these local deities? And God in the Old Testament really showed himself that he couldn't be coerced or manipulated or used, that he was above all those. Um, yes. I don't think that's what's at play in Exodus chapter 4. I would like it if that were at play. In other words, if Moses had a kind of, you know, a little statue of Ra in his pocket, um, I would love to know that. But that's, the narrative itself doesn't tell me that. It's actually a little bit more terse and more problematic. But you're right on the lar- from the larger standpoint of Israel's history. God is jealous for himself. And he's jealous to be understood according to his own account, which is, I chose you and I loved you. That's who I am. I mean, the larger kind of theology is if you're not going to be my people, then you're not going to be a people at all. I brought, I didn't get a chance to read it to you, but I brought James Pritchard's uh, text of the ancient Near East. I wanted to read you a little section from the Enuma Elish this morning, um, which is the, the, the account from the Babylonians about the creation of the world. It's so, it's so fascinatingly different than Genesis chapter 1, but basically what happens is Marduk gets in a fight with Tiamat, cuts her in half, and, when he, and spreads her guts all over the place, and that's how the world goes into the heavens and the earth. It's a very different account. What, what, what do you have? You, you have cosmic disorder. You have the gods fighting among themselves. But what do you get in Genesis chapter 1? And God said, and it happened. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very different account. So yes, God is setting himself up over rival deities to show them that they are nothing. Yeah. Yes, sir? I sometimes get the feeling from the ordering of the Jewish Bible, that the question that they're struggling with is not so much who is God, but uh, what is God? And by that I mean you start with Genesis, with God way up there, working through the prophets who are trying to redefine what God does for you and needs to do for you. You get into the wisdom literature, which seems like it's bringing God way down from there right into here. And he's kind of wisdom, how to proceed and how to live. And so I think that's maybe a significant question, whether I have it right or not. What seems to be significant? Yeah, I'll have to think about the way in which that's framed, but I think you make a good point in the sense of how the perspective within the way in which the tripartite canon is shaped is significantly moved when you move into the to the writings and that is now what does it, this is all true who god is now what does it look like to live life in the raw um, in light of in light of all that and what what you get and i appreciate this i don't know where you all are in this and this is taking me some time because i like things neat and tidy as well but what i appreciate is when i get into the writings i realize it's 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 messy it's complicated. It, it seems like when you read wisdom, you don't. They're talking about a kind of an imminent God, wait in here, as opposed to wait there. Yeah. Something has happened. Yeah. Although you still have books like Job, you know, in the writings. So you have both imminent, his imminence and his transcendence. Yeah. So they're they're they're, they're and how how we come to terms with that reality? Yeah. Okay. We need to go. Thank you for that. That's very helpful. Next week we'll, we'll press on. Okay.